0: Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. August 12,
1: 2021. Ben & Jerry's is back in the news again, carrying on a long campaign in favor of progressive social issues and a tactic of withholding or withdrawing its ice cream from a market as a form of protest against what founders Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield see as injustice in the country, province, or territory in question. Last month, in what it meant to be a bold statement against Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories, the company announced that it would cease selling its products in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, though not in Israel as a whole. One of the last places one would expect to find criticism of Ben and Jerry's is in the pages of the almost monochromatically liberal New York Times. But one of the paper's very few idiosyncratic voices, Brett Stevens, wrote a column on August 10 that takes issue with the move and questions how much of a sacrifice Ben and Jerry's is really making from a business standpoint, given the relatively minuscule market for its ice cream in the places in question, or indeed in Israel as a whole. Stevens points out that local laws, in all probability, will make it impossible for the company to sell in other parts of Israel while withholding sales in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Even given this reality, the cessation of sales in Israel is unlikely to put parent corporation Unilever in the red, Stevens writes. What the move amounts to is a self-serving gesture meant to signal to the world how right-thinking and progressive Ben & Jerry's is, and to perpetuate a reductionist scenario pitting Israeli aggressors and human rights abusers against Palestinian victims. This is far from the first time that the ice cream maker has engaged in such attention-getting, self-righteous posturing. Ben Cohen has acknowledged that he signed a petition supporting Mumia Abu-Jamal, the one-time Black Panther imprisoned in Pennsylvania for the fatal shooting of police officer Daniel Faulkner on a Philadelphia street in 1981. For honest people... There has never been real doubt about Abu-Jamal's guilt. Those on the left who try to portray Abu-Jamal as a political prisoner sweep the evidence under the rug. Bullets from Abu-Jamal's gun were recovered at the scene, and eyewitnesses at a hospital where Abu-Jamal was taken, after himself having been wounded in the incident, reported hearing the activist cry out, I shot the MF and I hope he dies, referring to the slain officer. Daniel Faulkner, just 25 years old, left behind four brothers and a devastated wife, Maureen Faulkner. The point of this brief digression is that radical-chic posturing, without regard for the facts or for the moral implications of the stance adopted, is an old game on the part of Ben and Jerry's. It is well to view Ben and Jerry's current stance with skepticism and to ask how much the company's founders know about the dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and, if they do have substantive knowledge of it, how they could treat such a complex subject in a manner so simplistic that they will stoop to making a vain, empty gesture that will ultimately cost them little but signal contempt for the state of Israel. The sanctimonious posturing is likely to continue, but one begins to imagine a scenario where aggressive boycotters themselves become the target of a boycott. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced his resignation after numerous allegations of sexual harassment came to light, for which he faces likely prosecution and a ban against him ever running for state office again. As might be expected, the loss of a pillar of New York State's powerful and entrenched Democratic establishment produced a spate of reactions, often depending on people's political affiliations. But it is notable that liberals and progressives did not rush to defend the disgraced governor and many of them praised his resignation as the right thing to do. In an editorial entitled End of the Road, the liberal New York Daily News says that Cuomo has made the right move, while calling this a sad moment and sternly warning people not to rejoice over the derailment of a political enemy's career, given all the difficult work that lies ahead for his successors. The points are well taken. But one cannot help wondering whether the news's editorial might have had a slightly different tone if the career of a prominent conservative politician had just come to such a dramatic and disgraceful end. But has it come to an end? An article by Michael Gartland in the same edition of the Daily News, 22 Race Wide Open After Andy Shocker," examines the huge field of potential candidates in next year's gubernatorial election and does not discount the possibility, however remote, that a chastened Cuomo may try for a comeback. Trying to predict what may happen in a political contest many months away is always suspect at best. But given Cuomo's ambition, ego, self-righteousness, and sense of entitlement as the son of respected governor Mario Cuomo, it seems fair to say that stranger things have happened. The News' article notes that if Andrew Cuomo does try to salvage his political future and run for governor again, he may compete in the primaries against the very Attorney General, Letitia James, whose official report on his severe and chronic sexual harassment was the decisive factor in his downfall. It is interesting to imagine what a debate between Cuomo and James next year might sound like. Even that is not the most outlandish possibility that Gartland's article raises. Gartland mentions New York Mayor Bill de Blasio as a possible, if not likely, contender for the governor's office next year. De Blasio's outsized political ambitions have never been a secret. After having failed miserably to attract support at a national level during his misbegotten entry into the field of Democratic contenders in the 2020 presidential race, it is easy to imagine De Blasio deciding that he has a better chance in deep blue New York, where he enjoys name recognition. But recognition for what, exactly? After having almost single-handedly wrecked the progress made in New York City under tough-on-crime mayors Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg, and having helped return the city to the vicious Hobbesian hell it was all through the 1980s and 1990s, with skyrocketing murder rates and a plummeting quality of life, de Blasio looks set to up his game even further and wreak havoc all throughout the state.
0: Pressure getting to Governor Newsom. With a recall vote looming about a month away, the Democratic governor sat for a video interview with reporters from the Sacramento Bee, San Luis Obispo Tribune and others. The usually calm governor, so unflappable that he's sometimes dismissed as a pretty boy with his chiseled chin and slick back hair, appeared uncharacteristically agitated throughout the video. Katie Grimes of the California Globe tabulated nine deployments of the kind of curse word damn and 59 instances in which the governor emphasized a point by pounding the table. In just six minutes. It'd be damn nice if our homegrown team start
1: focusing on what's right. Everybody outside this state is bitching about this state. I love this damn state. Over a hundred damn IPOs. I don't know why that doesn't get more damn attention. I look forward to seeing what I screwed up. This all of my damn head. So I'll stipulate that. Dominating all those other damn states. Hell, I did a $6 billion signing ceremony on Nunes' is back damn district. On a bill he opposed to get broadband to every one of his damn constituents.
0: Larry Elder, the black conservative radio host who appears to be Newsom's most formidable foe, got in a decent Twitter burn. Saying, Gavin Newsom unhinged during interview with journalists, morphs into Captain Queeg. It's must see TV.
1: Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.